Well, hello, my name is David Parker. I'm the Vice President at Visigos, and this is the latest in our giant series of uh, orthopedic surgeons uh, within Visigos, highlighting uh, the wonderful careers of many of our past and current leaders. And it gives me uh, great pleasure to introduce uh, my very good friend and colleague for many years, Laurie Heemstra from uh, Canada. And we're going to learn uh, a bit more and possibly a lot more about Laurie over the next uh, <laughs> half hour, 45 minutes, and uh, her wonderful contribution to orthopedic sports medicine. So, so Laurie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, David. Um, we find you, I guess, right now in Banff, in your hometown. Yeah. And uh, so I'm going to start right at the very beginning for you, maybe even go beyond the beginning um, to where you were initially born. Can, I know you were brought up in uh, Canada, in London, Ontario, is that right, where we did our fellowship together? Yeah, so we did our fellowship in London with Pete Fowler, and uh, I was actually born at St. Joe's Hospital in London, so... That just shows you how old that hospital actually is. But born in London and raised actually in Toronto, in a suburb of Toronto, but spent a lot of time in London growing up as most of my extended family was there. And and your parents were from uh, overseas, correct? Yeah, so I'm a first-generation Canadian, as many Canadians are, I guess, maybe not so much anymore. But my parents were both born in Holland. And uh, my dad actually remembers the Canadian soldiers coming through his town uh, when Canada was the allied forces that freed Holland during the war at the end of World War II. And my dad was five years old and he remembers the Canadian soldiers coming through and handing out chocolate bars. So after World War II, a lot of Dutch people immigrated to Canada versus the United States. So you'll see a lot of sort of my generation uh, Dutch people in Canada. And what did your parents tell you about what it was like being a, an immigrant uh, in a new country on the other side of the world? Yeah, so it's really interesting looking back at it now, because at the time it was just my life, but my, my grandparents barely spoke English. And, you know, my parents speak, uh, they came when they were younger, so they speak English with no accent at all. But many of my aunts and uncles have quite thick accents. But, uh, you know, we really stayed in a Dutch community, a lot of my friends growing up were Dutch. We we all hung out together as as many immigrants to a new country do, and and it really gave me an appreciation for other cultures because many of my friends from school were Canadian and Canadian for many generations are Canadian from different cultures than European cultures. So we really grew up in Canada, understanding a lot of different different cultures growing up, and it gave you a real appreciation for the differences between people. Yeah, and we'll get to this later. Obviously, that one of your big um, themes is diversity, and we'll we'll get yeah. to that in more detail about your orthopedic career. But um, how do you think that that background for you has influenced um, your thoughts and your, uh, I guess, your career and the way you live your life? Yeah, honestly, I think as I was growing up and just making your way through college and university and medical school and just trying to be an orthopedic surgeon. I'm not sure I appreciated how much uh, that diversity growing up influenced me and probably not until in the last five or 10 years when I've gotten more into the diversity work, have I kind of been able to look back and reflect and say, well, like probably all those things really influenced me and it may have just germinated over the years and have, re have really come forward now and given me a bit better understanding of myself and the people around me. Sure. And so you went to school in Toronto. 
and uh, yeah, high school, yeah. Yeah. So what were you in, what were you like in high school? What were you interested? Were, <laughs> were you a jock or were you a nerd studying all the time or a bit of both? I was, I was half jo- half jock and half nerd. I, I was a total tomboy, like honestly, till I was about 17 years old. People would come up and say, Are you a boy or are you a girl? Like I was a total tomboy and I was very much a jock, but I was very academic too. So I, I was a bit of a mix of nerd in there too. So I'd like to think I was a cool nerd, but I don't know. Maybe my friends can comment on that. But um, but very much uh, sports and athletics were a very big part of my life, as as many orthopedic surgeons were. My my main sport was softball for the most part growing up. Yeah. And yeah, were there yeah, things that happened during school or things people that inspired you? Yeah. What what led you to choose a career in medicine? And yeah, what what time did you sort of make that decision? Yeah. You know, I get asked this question a lot, and, and my answer is different than most. Honestly, I, w- I went to a tiny, uh, you know, private Christian school growing up, like gr- grade one to eight, there was like 50 kids. And in grade one, I remember I had Mrs. Cooper, and we had to do one of those projects where you lay on the mural paper and you outlined your body. And we got the, the blue and the, the red yarn, and we'd, we'd glue on our arteries and veins. And honestly, I remember picking up my little mural of little, you know, three foot tall me and seeing all these artists debates. I said, Mrs. Cooper, I'm going to be a doctor. And like, I have no idea where that came from. I'm the first doctor in my family. My mother went to university, which is probably a bit unusual for that generation and quite academic, but I come from a family of farmers and teachers and uh, and no doctors in the family. So I I have no idea where that came from in grade one, but that was the day I, I remember the day I decided to be a doctor. Wow, that, that's very early. <laughs> yeah, no. do, do you think that that uh, stayed your thing all the way through primary school and secondary school, or did you pick up on it later on, do you think? No, I think I picked up on the sport medicine and orthopedics later on. But the like, I, I've been a science geek always. I, I love science, and um, I used to experiment with all sorts of things. So I think the science part was there. I think I was born with that. The sport medicine really came through my sport and uh, – you know, I don't have the typical story where I had a big injury and, you know, I, I saw some orthopedic surgeons and that inspired me. I, I've never really had big injuries through my career. I just really loved the physical side of things. I loved working out. I loved playing. I loved that hand-eye coordination. And I just, I, I went into orthopedic, I went into med school to do orthopedics, to do sport medicine. And that was my goal all the way through. And I never wavered from it. So tell us a bit about your sport. I know you talked about yeah, being a, a half jock in high school, and <laughs> I know you played a lot of sport in um, in university and college. Just tell us a little bit about uh, how big a part sport is in your life, and you know, also how that has influenced you know, your choices in life as well. Mm-hmm. So softball was my main sport. So that's um, in Canada. That would be fast pitch. So that's like the windmill fast pitch. And uh, when I grew up, girls didn't play baseball, like the typical Blue Jays baseball, we played fast pitch. Um, so I played that, I played all sorts of sports in high school, but, but softball was my main one. And, you know, honestly, I have to say that one of the biggest influencers in my life was my softball coach when I was a young teenager. So I joined a competitive team when I was maybe uh, four, 14 till 18 or 13 till 18. And my coach, Mr. Smith, and that's not even a pseudonym, but Mr. Smith was a real father figure in my life. And my parents broke up 
earlier than that. So I didn't have my dad at home. And, and Mr. Smith really fulfilled that father figure for me. He was, he's a prince among men. I still see him every time I go to Toronto. His daughter was one of my best friends and on our team. And, and he, I think, was a real stabilizing influencer in my life. Uh, he used to give us these lectures. Uh, sport is a microcosm of life. It was his favorite saying, especially when we were losing. And he really taught us that how, how you play a sport game, you know, many people will just say sports, whatever, you're just playing a game, you're hitting a ball, you're throwing it around. But it's really not that. It's how you interact in the team, when you become a leader, when you need to be a follower, when you need to be the person that stands up, when you need to support your teammate when you need to like, you know, show the happy face when everyone is sad, um, all those things really translate very directly into your life. And, and really those skills. And, and uh, I think he was special in that he pointed that out. I think you can go through sporting life and, and do those things, but not really realize that those reflect how you need to act when you're an adult. Uh, but he would point it out and say, this is, you know, this is how, how life is and how you act and how, when you're 15 on a team and in a team situation is how you need to act later on in life. And I think that was very influential for me. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, because, you know, obviously a lot of those sort of sayings around sport and being a, a reflection of life uh, can seem a little bit cliched. And I can imagine mm-hmm. an older man trying to connect with teenage teenage girls and really make that connection and have them actually take them seriously. And obviously it had a big, profound impact on you. And yeah, and again, we'll get to this later in terms of uh, the diversity in orthopedics, but um, what, what do you think was special about this particular person that he could actually yeah, go beyond the cliches and make a meaningful connection that's had a profound influence on you? You know, I think part of it was his experience. So he was a black man. So from the the Caribbean and immigrated to Canada, and he was a very high-end athlete, you know, 40 years before I was there. And he even went to school and had scholarships in the States. And so I think he really um, had that lived experience of being a minority in in a high-end sport. And um, he, he... Mostly, I think it's just his personality, though. He, he is just an amazing person, and I, I try to be like him every day. So, But I think his lived experience and his experience in sport um, let him be that person for a bunch of teenage girls. Honestly, I look back at it now. Like, honestly, he must have been 45 when he did this. Can you imagine when, you were, <laughs> when we were 45 coaching a whole bunch of, like, 15-year-old girls? Like mm. when I think back on that, I'm like, holy heck, like, like what a, what an amazing thing that man did. And what an influence. When I go home to Toronto now, our team still gets together with him. We all get together and we're all still in touch to this day. And has he changed at all? Not a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Now those, those people are obviously incredibly uh, important and there's a lot of luck involved as to whether you sort of, they cross your path. Um, 100%. Now, now moving on yeah in in the on the topic of people who inspire you and who are sort of your heroes yeah as we move into your orthopedic career you know who were your inspirations you know you've just left college you've decided you want to do orthopedics which is going to be sports medicine yeah at that stage um who were you looking up to who were the people you were inspired by yeah 
So I think I moved around a lot for all my different trainings. So I think I probably have a person in each city. So when I was a medical student in Newfoundland, and Newfoundland is a tiny little island way in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on the east coast of Canada. And there really isn't a lot of subspecialization there. Certainly there wasn't when I was a med student, but I wanted to do sport medicine orthopedics. And um, a surgeon there named Colin Landells, he's now uh, retired, but he moved out to Victoria, the West Coast. But he was very influential for me. I, he let me follow him around clinic. He took me to the OR. He, again, is a, a huge uh, believer that everyone is equal. He didn't treat me any different. He was very encouraging and even until um, supporting me to become president of the Canadian Orthopedic Association, he was right there and supported me throughout my career. When I was a resident, I was actually very lucky in residency. Um, I had uh, Dr. Bill Rennie and Dr. Peter McDonald were uh, our program director and the chair of uh, orthopedics. And again, honestly, I didn't even think about the fact that I was like, you know, one of the few girls around. They were... They were very good to me and very good mentors and just great, great men that did the right thing, were excellent surgeons, were good people, and really were just role models for me in orthopedics. And then, of course, fellowship was Pete Fowler. And I mean, we can talk forever about Pete Fowler and, and what a great man he was. And you and I both lived that, that amazing year where Pete was really in the prime of his career when we were there. And just what an influence he was on so many people around him, just just by being him. He, he didn't even have to try, right? He was just him, and and you just wanted to be like him. No, exactly. I think that's that's a, been a very profound effect on on so many people. Um, yeah. Thanks to um, Pete, and and so if we then then sort of turn it around, so you're a leader now, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, so you've now got an opportunity to have a similar affect and inspire people coming through uh, how do you approach that do you see i mean firstly do you see it as a big responsibility and secondly how do you you know i think we all want to sort of feel like we've inspired people and made a difference but uh, we can think it but actually making it happen uh requires a you know, an effective strategy so so who are you trying to inspire and you know, what's what's your strategy to actually make it work yeah you know that's a great question david it's it's really interesting when you are underrepresented in a in a your profession. So um, it's actually funny because where I work, we actually have half of the surgeons in Banff are, are girls or females. So um, it, it, we don't notice it, but the residents really want to come to Banff to to see. Like the female residents want to come to Banff. Uh, in order to be around other female surgeons. So we've all heard about mentors and you want to try to find mentors that are like you, especially when you're underrepresented. And I really noticed it. uh, Even now, you can see if you look at the residents and fellows that have come through the BAMP Sport Medicine residency or fellowship program, like there's a way higher proportion of women than men. And in fact, it almost got to the point where like my partner's like, like, can we have a guy fellow for once, you know, because we've had like six girls in a row, which is actually amazing considering the, the representation, you know, the numbers that aren't, aren't that great. So um, I think, you know, that the, the it's not a burden, but you feel that responsibility because you want to be there for people who want to see you. And, uh, you know, I've really tried to, honestly, I've tried to be like Pete, like, 
you, you be a good person, you see people that are, are smart and are willing to work and, are, you know, have their stuff together. And you just, you just treat them well, you teach them, you be there for them, you sponsor them, you put their name forward, you get their name on papers. And I think just by doing that is how I've tried to be a leader, because you can't do everything and you can't be everything to everyone. So um, I've really tried to make an effort to, to be there for, especially for the female residents in Canada that have made an effort to come out and see me. Yeah. And you've certainly um, been an amazing leader. Um, and I, it, I think it's the difficulty is sometimes people get pigeonholed as an amazing female leader, right? But you're, you're, you're an amazing leader. But um, I think because we have yeah, a lot less female leaders than we have male leaders, then um, that tends to be how people get categorized at these days. So I'd like to get on to the, the, the issue um, about you know, gender and diversity in orthopedics, because obviously that's a, a big topic for you, a topic very close to your heart. I mean, I remember we both went to our first discourse meeting in Montreux, and then, and then you became, we both became members after that, because Pete had told us, you know, you've got to go to this meeting, and you've got to become members, and uh, and that was the beginning of our uh, relationship with Isakos, which has obviously flourished. And uh, I understand, I found out just the other day that you were actually the fifth female member of Isakos, which seems crazy, really, that you're, you're only the fifth yeah. uh, when it was started <laughs> you know, several years before. But anyway, I guess that tells us where we were at that particular point in time. So um, I'd like to just ask you, you know, because obviously you've had this you know, lived experience about uh, being a, a female who wanted to do orthopedics, and you've given us a bit of background there already. Uh, but you know, obviously, a lot of people struggle with this, and um, I want you to tell us you know, about some of your experiences in your younger years. What were the biggest challenges that you faced being a female in your younger years, wanting to do orthopedics and be an orthopedic sports medicine surgeon? Yeah, uh, it's a great question, and I think my answer is: I think. If you ask that to, you know, 20 different women orthopedic surgeons, you'll get 20 different answers. And, and I have to say, looking back on it, I, I was very, very lucky. So I don't think that I had, um, I don't, I didn't have as many challenges as some have had. And having said that, though, I think that I had a lot of challenges that I didn't recognize as challenges until I learned more about DEI and diversity efforts more recently. And then I look back at my career and go, you know what? That actually was different for me. But I'm not sure I, I even realized it at the time. Because, well, I, I think honestly, it goes, it goes back to my mother. <laughs> we'll go Freudian. But my mother was a very strong woman. And she told me I could do, do what I wanted to do. Like, I, I grew up with two older brothers that you know, beat the crap out of me and made me tough. So that whole orthopedic culture, uh, that whole male culture, the sporting culture was all very normal to me. Um, so honestly, I just, I kind of had my like, I wanted to do this and I wanted to do it my whole life. And I just applied and I don't even think it occurred to me when I applied for orthopedics. Like I knew there wasn't that many girls in orthopedics, but it didn't occur to me. I didn't know how few there were. And I didn't realize what an what a amazing thing that was to get in. I think I just wanted to do it and I did it. 
And it, it wasn't until later where we learned, I learned more about culture and, and you know, unconscious bias and, and things like that, that I realized some of the things that I did overcome going through. But having said that, I think there's many women that had a much different experience that I did. But I, I was very lucky in that I had very good mentors. I had people who sponsored me and mentored me and treated me well through every stage of my career. And I'm very, very thankful for that. Yeah, I mean, when you, when we talk about your experience, it, it makes it sound like it's very simple, really. <laughs> you know, there, there, there isn't yeah. a problem. And I guess you had a combination of uh, the, a good environment, um, yeah. good people around you, plus uh, an inbuilt uh, resilience. Um, potentially from you know, genetics or from your upbringing. Um, but obviously there are situations where the environment isn't so good and, um, and maybe the person themselves isn't so resilient. Uh, what do you see uh, are the biggest issues that females have had to face in trying to get ahead in orthopedics? Yeah, I, I think without, without doubt, the biggest issues women face is just male culture. And uh, I know that's kind of a catch-all phrase, but the reality is, and, and it's not the fault of maybe people today, like this is built into the history of medicine is that, you know, doctors are men and, and the whole system is built on, uh, on the male doctor slash surgeon who has the wife at home to take care of the kids. And so like even call schedules and when meetings are scheduled and, and what patients think uh, who the doctor is when you walk in a room with a group of people, um, you know, and even the, the jokes, um, they're all built around a male culture and a culture that favors men and, and likely favors white men over other men, depending what country you're in, or at least in, in uh, Western countries. So you know, changing culture is exceedingly difficult because that's just, it's ingrained in our societies. It's ingrained in our religion. It's in our families. It's in everything. So, but I, I would think the hardest thing that women face is that male culture. So even things as simple as like, let's take it away from the harassment and bullying. Like we all know that that that's just wrong. And, and like, we shouldn't even be discussing it. It's just wrong. But you even take things as simple as, um, you know, well, even stuff like a traveling fellowship, say you're visiting with five men and one women, woman, a, a center, the men or the other three residents that are with you, whichever situation you want, go, you know, they go with the male surgeon into the, the, the male change room and they're starting, they're discussing the case, they're discussing a case and poor little Lori or Jane or whoever goes off into the girls change room to hang out with the nurses and the nurse, you know, and so you're all by yourself. So while you're changing, the, the men are discussing the case and, you know, you come out and you go to the OR and who are they going to let do part of the procedure? They're, you know, they've, they've already just discussed the case and everything with the male surgeon while you were off changing in the, in the girls change room. And so like all those little things just put you at a disadvantage and like no one thinks of them. And, and, and I, you know, you don't blame people for not thinking of them. We just aren't trained to think of things like that, but all those little things put you at a disadvantage. And for some people, they're a huge disadvantage for other people. Like you said, they can be resilient, but we shouldn't have to depend on resilience to get equity right you should you know culture shouldn't be based on who can be resilient enough to get through it so a lot of those cultural barriers and and that that male male dominated culture really needs to change if we're going to ever achieve equity and that's very difficult right 
Yeah, Maybe no, while the girls go into the girls' change room and talk about the case with their female surgeon, <laughs> and then the men can be left out. But yeah. no, I think there are so many things in society yeah. that have been ingrained for not just decades, but centuries and thousands of years. And I think that's the difficulty. We can all see how things need to change, uh, but then uh, getting that across all different people in different cultures obviously can be very hard. I mean, I even look back and you know when I was going through my training and. Yeah, as you said, there's the obvious stuff that happens that everybody knows is wrong, but it's all that yeah. subtle stuff yeah. that just becomes uh, norm behaviour uh, that is very hard to for people to see as different when it is the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, you know, Isakos is a global society, yeah, and you and I have both uh, been involved in trying to advocate for females in different cultures and you much more than anybody else. Uh, how do you see... Yeah, these these differences uh, across the world. I mean, uh, certain parts of the world, it's incredibly different, difficult for women in orthopedics. Uh, what, what's been your experience in that area? You know, it's super interesting uh, um, what people rem- think of their own experience. So I've spoken to women in countries that we would normally consider very oppressive to women, and they think that there's actually no problem. And then you think to speak to women in countries that actually are, you know, have a you know reputation of fairly good equality, and they think there's a horrible problem. So I think everyone's experience is is um, colored by their their own past and their own experience, and and that's just the situation. I mean, you you might just end up with a not nice person near you. So um, my my feeling is we we need to listen. So I, I think everyone has their own experience that they lived and you and I, we have fairly similar upbringings and similar cultures, and it's very easy for us to talk about our culture. You know, someone from a country in Asia has a very different upbringing. And I think if we start li- listening to each other and listening to stories, you, you will get a better understanding of what people are experiencing themselves. And then that opens you up to be understanding of what they're experiencing. Because you you can't understand what someone else is experiencing unless you listen to their stories. So I think this is where we really need to learn to sometimes shut up and just listen to other people and just uh, have the grace to understand that what they're experiencing is what they're experiencing. It might not be what you experience in the same situation as them, but it's what they are feeling. So. I think I think we need to start by by listening and and understanding the the privilege we each take into a, a situation. And uh, privilege has always been a bit of a bad connotation word. And I I think that actually privilege is the key to this because if we actually recognize that just privilege is something that we don't ask for, we don't earn. It's just what we get. So. Um, you know, you, if you and I both walk into a patient's room with a group of residents, you have some privilege that I don't have because you're a man and you didn't ask to be a man. You didn't, you didn't ask for that, but, but people will assume things about you because you're a man. Like they half the time assume I'm the nurse or the physio and they'll assume you're the surgeon. Hopefully that changes over time, but I have privilege when I walk into the room too, because I'm tall, right? I mean, you can't see me here, but I'm almost six feet tall. And so I'll have a privilege walking into the room that someone who's five feet tall and looks 12 years old and is a surgeon doesn't have, even if they're a white woman 
or if they're not a white woman or a white man. So we all have these privileges. And I think understanding that even walking into a room or a lobby or a coffee shop, we all have, have things that people assume about us that have nothing to do with who we are that make our experience different. I don't know if I explained that well, but I, mm, I think no. that's really key. I think, um, I mean, I think that, that, you know, the, the phrase that you mentioned before about unconscious bias, you know, and mm-hmm. um, actually taking the time to step back and realize where we've come from, where other people have come from. And, 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 and when you explain it, you know, it all sounds very simple. You know, we listen, we appreciate, we have insight into where we've come from, where other people have come from. And in the end, we have empathy. Um, but that um, is often, I think, overridden by autopilot that we're on. And um, it's it's switching off the autopilot and listening, I think, is, is sort of what, I don't want to sort of paraphrase what you said so nicely before, but that I think is is what we're trying to achieve here. Yeah. Um, so you've obviously you know, done a lot of effort towards improving um, female representation in orthopedics um, yeah, and the gender diversity. And if you sort of step back and see where we were maybe 10 years ago, where we are now, um, how do you think we're going? Where are we? Are we are we getting over the hump? Are we sort of still climbing up the hill? Where do you, where do you think we are right now? Um, I think I think we've made huge strides, huge huge strides. But I don't think we're over the hump. I think uh, the um, well, what, what I'd like to what I'd like to put out there too is um, I think the understanding of the men in orthopedics has grown so much like there are so many male allies and men that are actually like thinking about and going oh yeah like that situation might not be so good and so many men who have come up to me after the talks going you know what I totally get what you're talking about now because somebody talked about it and then I thought about it and I looked around my day and what was happening and I saw so many instances of things that actually aren't that right and so I think the the buy-in on the whole concept has increased significantly. Um, The reason I don't think we're over the hump is I think that that whole culture and the culture is not just in medicine, it's in our whole world and all parts of our society, not just our hospitals, that is going to take longer to change. So if you, you can't just change that culture in the hospital or in your clinic, if it's not changed at home, So if women, for example, using women, obviously, as my examples, but if women have to bear 80% of the child rearing and elder care and dishes and cooking at home, even though you're both surgeons, if you don't have equity in those kind of things in the home and you don't have them at the grocery store and you don't have them in other workplaces, you can't just have them in the hospital. So until our whole culture changes, um, then we'll get a bit more over the closer to the getting over the hump. But I, I honestly, I, I'm so, so proud of, of the strides we've made and how organizations like ISACOS, like the Canadian Orthopedic Association have really taken this to heart and made a concerted effort to bring this to the forefront and make changes. So I think we're on the right track. I just, it's never fast enough, right? No, uh, absolutely. I think, you know, when, as you say, these things have been ingrained yeah. For centuries, for centuries. And I think the change has to happen at a generational level. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's interesting. I mean, I look at um, my kids and uh, their friends coming through. I think they 
I don't know what you think. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, but I think they have a much better insight and understanding now. And I think that will happen and transition as each generation comes through. What do you think? I do think, I think there, there's some parts of it that need to change like now, like harassment, bullying, sexual assault, like all those kind of things, like that doesn't need a generation that the attitudes will definitely take a little, it, it took me, like if you had, if you had asked me these questions 15 years ago, my answers would have been completely different. It took my whole life to come around to some of this stuff. So uh, many of those attitudes will take time. And uh, again, in a global society, like there's, there's religious issues, there's cultural issues that all, all are like thousands of years of history. These are ingrained in, in our culture. So it, it's going to take some time. But uh, my kids, I, I'm happy to see, are uh, much better at this than I was at their age. No, I think it, it's very reassuring um, mm-hmm. when, you, when you look at the younger generation, how much better understanding they seem to have than us old people. Um, so and I'm interested to hear what your thoughts about, you know, when we've, we've reached that, um, you know, that nirvana and diversity, you know, we've, we've got the, the right level. What does that actually look like? I mean, people talk about having quotas and having the same numbers. And if you look in the different areas of medicine, there's, there's, there's a disparity on both sides of the equation, you know, in females more represented in some areas, males, what, what are you, what is your idea and your concept about what ideal diversity and equality means? So, I mean, I like to talk about equity versus equality. So equality would be there was 50, you know, if there's 50% women in the world, there'd be 50% women in every specialty. And I think we all know that that's, that's wouldn't be right. And it, it wouldn't be good. Um, I think, you know, we want equity equity is is equality of opportunity so you you want to have the opportunity the same and it may be that for orthopedics you know you know maybe maybe equity for orthopedics for gender is is 60 40 men men and women like maybe men like orthopedics more than women i, I don't know i mean the lord knows but um i don't think we want 50 50 i'm very leery of quotas unless they're done very carefully. I mean, the whole purpose of quotas is kind of force you. Um, but, but the reality is, is we need to look at, I mean, it, it needs to be meritocrat. I don't know what the word is, meritocratous. No, it, you know, you need to have merit to, to get the job. But what we have to understand is who made the rules of merit. So if you're going to be president of the United States, um, and you have to have these qualities. Well, who made, who said those were the qualities? So again, we say leaders have to be strong and, you know, you know, I don't know, they have to fight in the army and they have to, you know, yell at people and like people, societies have their ideas of what a leader should be. And that has dictated what the merit is to get the job. But what people haven't understood is those are inherently biased. So biased in the whole culture. So maybe a leader should be empathetic and a team player and, you know, all these other things. And then there's actually lots of research that shows that those leaders are excellent. So I think, you know, we always want people that are meritorious to get positions of leadership, but we need to rethink what do we consider as merit. Exactly. That is inherently biased by our culture and history. So, so correcting those biases and equity of opportunity. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And then, you know, I think you'll still see that, you know, obviously men and women are not the same. If we were the same, like the world would be incredibly boring, right? We we have different strengths. And, and between women, some women are, uh, you know, they're different than other women. We all have our strengths and our uniqueness. And that's what that would you know, that's what makes the magic happen. So we we want the differences because we want those to collaborate and work together to create an, an awesome world. So, you know, equality is, I'm not big on equality, I'm big on equity. All right. Now, now you're um, just coming out towards the end of your term as the president, I think the first yeah. female president of the North Peak Association. So yeah. congratulations, another string to your bow and, and great achievement and uh, I guess I know knowing you well I know you will have always seen that as not just a title but an opportunity yeah. and and you know we've talked about you know your themes of your leadership and I'd just mm-hmm. like to get you to elaborate a bit on those and, and what they mean to you so the first one I, I know you mentioned was you know, about unity through mm-hmm. diversity so you mm-hmm. can you elaborate on that and you know what it means and and how you feel you've gone with achieving that goal yeah, so my main themes with the COA have been diversity, unity, and uh, and working on leadership. So, again, similar to the themes we've been talking about, like valuing people's differences. So, if you have a whole bunch of the exact same people with the exact same upbringing and the same experiences making decisions, they're making very narrow-minded decisions. So, really valuing the diversity that different people bring in. But then using that diversity to, you know, to have to have greater empathy and greater thoughts about how we can work together. So in Canada, our, our healthcare is fairly siloed. So um, like a different different group runs the residency programs that runs the uh, and hospitals run and provinces run the funding for how we get paid. There's a lot of different silos. So really working on using our diversity, but to come together as a united front to to make our orthopedics better in Canada has been my theme. And then I've been really uh, pushing changing culture. And so by changing culture to value diversity so that we can be united. And uh, so things that we've done is we've rebranded the whole COA this year. So you can see instead of our old Britishy uh, seal. We've got a, a nice new um, logo. We've rebranded everything. Um, we've really worked on uh, increasing representation from geographic to um, ethnic to gender on all our committees. We've um, really worked at bringing everybody together and bringing the provincial heads together on committees. So I've really been working on, um, it's, I know they, they sound um uh, against each other, but unity and diversity working together to, to push orthopedics forward. So that's been really my themes for this year. And I know you're you're a scientist. Um, we do research. I mean, mm-hmm. I think most of us are clinicians first and scientists second, but we like to base things on science. Yep. So all these um, goals that you've had, you know, like in a research project um, for unity and diversity and how do you measure the outcomes of what you do in this regard? <laughs> yeah, you hit the biggest challenge for us in Canada. So again, in other countries may be different, but in Canada, because of all those silos, it's actually really difficult to get metrics that we can follow. So we've been working uh, you know, to, to try to find uh, metrics that we can look at. Unfortunately, like, like, like again, for gender, um, uh, gender in um, orthopedics, 
you know, numbers of women in orthopedics is the easiest metric to measure. But, you know, some of, some of these things, and this is going to be the challenge around the world, is like we don't even know in Canada how many women apply to orthopedic residency. I can find out maybe if I call every university how many women got in, but I actually can't even find out how many applied. So if you're going to, to measure success or, you know, getting rid of biases or non-discriminatory getting people into orthopedic residency, like how can you do that when you don't even have the numbers? So I think this is going to be the biggest challenge um, for gender diversity and diversity in general is, is finding those metrics because like health information acts, you're not allowed to collect certain data. People don't collect a lot of data and, and actually following those is very difficult. We took a little bit different bent in Canada. We actually just published in JBGS um, an article about the barriers that female orthopedic surgeons in Canada face during their training and, and, and being staff people. Um, and that's another way to measure metrics. So if you're going to work towards uh, improving diversity and equity, can you, can you then, you know, in five years, redo that study and see if the barriers have decreased or certain barriers have gone away or lessened? So we've gone more on a, an outcome end versus a, an intake end, trying to look at what metrics we can use to follow if we're actually doing a good job. But it's a, it's a huge challenge. Yeah, no, it is a huge challenge. And I think um, it's obviously just translating those um, goals, those ambitions, those desires um, into something that is actually tangible and has results. Yeah, we all like to measure whether what we're doing is actually uh, achieving what we intend to achieve. And so I wonder, is there anything that uh, a global organization like Hisakos can do to help um, yeah, measure these things for you and for females around the world to see to get some sort of global um, measure of how we're doing in this regard yeah it's tough I wish I could come up with an easy answer to that and I'm, I'm not sure I have it yet just because each each country is different you know if you look at uh, the International Orthopedic Diversity Alliance IOTA which I was a founding member of like we have that that little heat map of rep even female representation like how many female orthopedic surgeons are in each country and 80% of the map we don't even have data for like how many female orthopedic surgeons are there in 80% of the countries we don't even know so i think you know that in that way is a cost maybe can help being such a great global organization and that's just simple numbers like you know x over y y over x how many how many women do you have there and that's data we don't even have for much of our our world i mean and let's ask you i mean you've obviously become a very prominent um leader in orthopedics and not just a female leader but a, a leader in orthopedics but um, and when we look to leaders, often we go to, there's a couple of people that we go to in this area. You know, we go to Eliza Arendt, uh, we go to you. And obviously we need to have more people that we can go to and the great representation across leadership roles. I mean, as, as sort of a go-to person in this area, A, do you, do you find it a huge responsibility? And do you sometimes think you'd rather be talking about um, <laughs> areas of orthopedics that you're interested in? Rather than Patellas? Yeah. Rather than just being the female leader. You know what? I was actually thinking about this as I walked the dog before this, but, you know, as I, as I do more and more diversity stuff, I'm being more, known more and more 
about the diversity things. And, and I thought to myself, you know, you know, just like when we were fellows together, we, we, we knew what we wanted, right? We wanted to be like Pete, we wanted to be cutting edge, we wanted to be great orthopedic surgeons. And, and that's still what I want. Like, I think I would be really disappointed in life if, if I was known only as a diversity expert, because I actually think I'm a, a recently good orthopedic surgeon and I do a lot of pretty cutting edge patellofemoral work. And, and honestly, if I was only known as a patellofemoral surgeon and, and people didn't know me as a diversity expert, I think I'd be really disappointed also. So I'd like to think we can keep both those roles. I have to say I'm enjoying the diversity work immensely. It's exceedingly gratifying and seeing the changes that have happened over time has, has been amazing. And Probably the, the most gratifying thing is the relationships I've made, the people I've met, um, the friends I have around the world, and, and, and seeing everyone come together for United Cause has been and the most gratifying of all of it. And I guess I've been a bit guilty of this because I've been focusing on this for most of this interview, so we should probably yeah. talk a little bit about <laughs> your orthopedic medicine career because I know you, you're obviously not just known for diversity, but known for the great orthopedic sports medicine so i'm going to ask you just a few questions about that just so, so we we acknowledge that your contribution <laughs> to orthopedic Thanks. sports medicine not just to, to yeah. diversity so i mean we were fellows as you say well yeah. it's about just over 20 years ago now which um people watching this will won't believe because there's no way we could be that old either of us but clearly um, so and that was a great time you know obviously seeing stuff that was in the cutting edge and you know, working with pete and ned and Sandy Kirkley and Bob Litchfield. Um, so between now and then, what, what do you think are the biggest advances that you've seen in orthopedic sports medicine um, up until now? Uh, well, I'm a bit biased on that one too, but like what's changed the most since I was a fellow is the patellofemoral stuff, which is why I do it because it's exciting. Like I think, you know, there's been a lot of advances in ACL, but they're tweaks, right? We don't do an ACL that much differently than we did when we were fellows. We, yeah, we use a different portal and we, we've moved our tunnel forward and back a few millimeters, you know, every five years. Um, but I think the patella femoral work, when I started practice, we just didn't, at least in Canada, I know it's different in France and other places, but like people in Canada basically never got surgery for patella femoral instability. And now they're being treated with all sorts of operations. And uh, it's been, it's been life-changing for thousands of people in Canada. Uh, and to me, that's, what's changed the most since we were fellows, you know, we still do HDOs and yeah, we use different plates and we do a bit different osteotomies and we might measure things a little bit different. And, th and those are all fine tuning, but I don't think the principles are that different, but for patellofemoral instability, the principles are vastly different than when we were fellows. Give me a couple of examples. I mean, cause I think a lot of people would probably say, yes, we, we've started doing MPFL reconstructions. Mm -hmm. um, but we're still doing tibial tubic osteotomies. We still do the occasional trochleoplasty. I mean, what, what what do you see as the biggest advances uh, that have happened in patellofemoral during your career? So I think when I started, um, people did TTOs and no MPFLs. So if you had patellofemoral instability, you actually found a sports surgeon that fixed patellas. You got a TTO. Maybe you got a medial reefing. In fact, I just operated on someone yesterday that had previous reefing, like where they bring the VMO way over. Um, but MPFL, no one ever heard of. Um, so basically got isolated TTOs and you know what, they, they work for some people for sure. If you can get the biomechanics, right. So I now see, um, I see a lot of surgeons doing MPFLs, but I see a, a lot more 
thought put into all the other pathoanatomy. So again, trocleoplasty, um, you know, I probably do most of the trocleoplasties in Canada and, uh, you know, I'm getting referrals all the time for people with high-grade dysplasia and derotation osteotomies and, and really just sorting out all of the pathoanatomy that exists and thinking about all of it rather than saying, oh, your patella is dislocating, we're going to do a TTO, which tended to be the thinking when I first started. We now, I like, we gather all sorts of information and, and really, um, really following David DeJour and all his principles from Lyon is really tailor our operation to the pathoanatomy of the patient. And we're doing much bigger, crazier operations like derotation osteotomies and trocleoplasties on a more regular basis. And I know that you know, research has always uh, informed your practice and yeah, you've been involved in doing your own research. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, you know, you're, you're busy, you know, you're busy clinically, you've got all your COA um, jobs to do, you've got a family, um, you're busy. How, and so, and research, generally speaking, is something that we do for passion. It's, it's, a, it's not a paid role. It's something that we do because we're generally interested. So, so how, do, how do you maintain your passion for actually dedicating time and energy and often you know, money into, into research? You know, uh, research was my first love, actually, outside of orthopedics, but I started my PhD when I was a resident, and I really got passionate for research because, you know, at the end of the day, and you sit there, you see a patient, you decide what you're going to do to help them, and then you have to talk to them about the risks and what the options are, you know, it, it behooves us as scientists and surgeons to, to inform our patients using data and using science. It can't just be like, oh, I've done 20 of these and they did okay, so I'm going to do that to you. you we, it, it, it's our responsibility to back up what we do to people. It's pretty invasive what we do to people, right? And like, I think it, it behooves us to, to understand why we're doing it or at least be able to tell them, I, I don't have the data behind this, but this is what my experience tells me. Uh, or we're looking at the data, we're trying to figure out why this works. So research really is my best love. And quite honestly, the only way I've been able to balance it is I have the best research coordinator on the planet. And I'm not telling you her name because you'll steal her, but she has kept our research program going. And uh, I could not do what I do without her, quite honestly, which brings me to, you know, to be successful, you have to surround yourself with the right people. So choose your friends wisely you know, surround yourself with people that you lift up and they lift you up. And, and then things things go right when you surround yourself with the right people. No, totally, totally agree. I mean, we, you can't do this sort of thing by yourself and do those other, other things in your life. So so what area of research intrigues you and piques your interest most right now? What, what are you most curious about? <laughs> Everything patellas, yeah. So um, we've really started down the patella road about 10 years ago. And so uh, it, it astounds me to this day. You know, we talk about, you know, if your caton des champs is this, you have to do a distalization. If your TTTG is this, you have to, you must do a TTO. And I'm like, all of that is based on expert opinion. There, you know, it's starting now in the last five to 10 years, we're starting to get more and more data. 
But the reality is, is patients with patellar instability are so different. They're, it's so multifactorial. No patient is the same. So actually getting a homogeneous group of people that you can do good, good research on and have good data on is very, very difficult. So uh, it, it's challenging for me. I like the challenge, obviously. So uh, the patella, our patella research is, is our most interesting research to me. I love it. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. What, oh so what's the number one <laughs> thing that you've found from, in your research in the last 10 years? What's the most useful thing that you've found by doing your research that's translated into your clinical practice? Useful? I would say validating our outcome measure for patellar instability has been the most useful. So when I started our patellofemoral research, we're like, okay, so we're going to do patellofemoral research. What outcome measure are we going to use? How are we going to track these patients? And I looked, not one disease-specific outcome measure for patellofemoral instability. So I'm like, well, how, how are you going to do research on patellas if we don't have a validated outcome measure? So we actually created and validated, quite extensively validated, more than most outcome measures out there, the BANF patellar instability score. And uh, to me, that has been the most useful. It's a quality of life score, so it has its limitations that way. But it has been the most useful for us now being able to track patients longitudinally and globally um, using this score. Because if you don't have a good outcome score, everything you gather isn't, isn't worth anything. It, it's the basis of all re clinical research is to have good, valid outcome scores. So for me, that, that was the, the highlight of our research so far. All right. Now we're going to move on from... Um from work stuff, I want you to tell me or tell us <laughs> something that you're passionate about that's not actually work-related. Golf. Golf. I love to golf. That's why Willem and I get along. Okay. Um, yeah, so I have a, a bit of a bad back, so I had back surgery a year ago, so some of the activities I used to do, I can no longer do, but I have a new passion for golf. And now that my kids are old enough that I can actually get away from them from long enough to actually complete a game of golf, I love to golf. It is my middle-aged uh, sport. Okay. Well, good. And hopefully it's something you can continue with for a long time mm -hmm. and ultimately uh, beat Willem. Um, but he That's does get a thousand balls a day, I think. So good yeah. luck. Mm -hmm. Now, as we're sort of winding up and you know, you're finishing up as COA president in a month or two, um, obviously, you're still very involved in ISCOS and other organizations, um, and you're still pretty young. You know, you still got a long way to go, hopefully. So, so what does the future look like for you? We've talked about everything you've achieved to this date. Yeah. Um, what What does your future look like? Uh, I don't know. Obviously, I want to stay involved with ISCOS and COA. Um, there's still lots of work to be done in both those organizations, and I love both of them, and will be stay involved. Um, I'd really like to continue ramping up my patellofemoral clinical and research. But, you know, I, uh, at some point you, you wait and see what comes your way. I've been, uh, a lot of my career, I've, uh, the good things that have happened in my career have been unexpected opportunities. So I like to stay open to those. I'm doing some new work um, in virtual reality. So looking at new ways of educating surgeons, and that's been really exciting. And so I like exploring some of those different things. Uh, I, I tend to keep moving around a little bit. I like to keep 
doing new things. So we'll see how that virtual reality turns out. It's really, really exciting and really fun right now and see where that goes. And we'll see what opportunities come my way. Well, you certainly seem to be good at seeking out the right opportunities and um, the opportunities seem to seek you out for obvious reasons too. So, so Laurie, thank you. Thank you for your time. And uh, it's been great chatting again. And uh, it's always great when uh, it's with someone who's such a good friend and a great colleague. And congratulations on your, I won't say your wonderful career, I'll say your career to date um, because you. you've been a, uh, an incredible leader and and I'm sure that will just continue to evolve and develop into the future. So I look forward to working with you in the future and um, congratulations again. And thanks for your time. Thanks so much, David.